Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Silas, had to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. I apologize for the brief delay in not getting on the air right at 3 o'clock. There was a brief technical problem that has since been resolved. Starting today with the Pittsburgh Penguins, of course, they survived a bit of a scare last night in the third period were at home against the Ottawa Senators and of course Matt Murray returning to Pittsburgh I'll touch on that more here in a few minutes but the Penguins went into the third period winning by a score of 5-1 to one. the final score was 6-4 and of course the sixth goal of the game for the Penguins was an empty net goal from Jake Gensel so, taking that out of the picture, it's a 5-4 hockey game, which isn't necessarily the greatest result when you look at the fact that the Pens went into the third period winning by a score of 5-1 to one against Ottawa, who, if you take a look at the league standings, currently sit 30th out of 32 teams ahead of Arizona, on winning percentage in ahead of Montreal by two points. So the third worst team in hockey put up three goals in the third period and almost came back to beat the Penguins after the fact that Ottawa outshot the Penguins 43-34. to First of all, you can't be getting outshot by a team as bad as Ottawa. I mean, you have got to find a way to get pucks to the net, even if it is just a shot that goes right at the goalie. I mean, I know Matt Murray wasn't in net last night, but whether it was Philip Gustafson or Anton Forsberg, one of them has to be making a save more often than not, especially, as I said, with as poor as this Ottawa team truly is. Of course, it was Gustafson that started the game. Forsberg came on in relief of Gustafson, but again, it doesn't matter who's in goal. you got to find a way to get pucks to the net. That's first and foremost. Then, the fact that Ottawa was able to score three in the third period after scoring just one in the first two, again, that has to change. I don't know if it was the fact that the Penguins felt like they had the game in the bag and so they could lighten up a bit. Of course, I'm not going to say that that was 100% what they did because I know that in terms of physical effort, it was still there. But of course, mentally, that thought could have been there. That thought could have caused them intrinsically to not try as hard. And it's something that the Penguins have to get out of their mindset. You cannot treat any team in the NHL or any professional sports league, for that matter, lightly. Mike Tomlin says this all the time, and I'm not going to steal any of his Tomlinisms that are classic among the Pittsburgh Steelers fan base, but the point is you cannot overlook anyone, whether they're the best team in the league, the worst, or anywhere in between. And I'm thinking subliminally, that is what the Penguins did last night 
especially when they got to the third period ahead five to one. And don't get me wrong, that's something that could be very easy to do with as bad of a team as Ottawa is in terms of their record and placement in the Eastern Division, the Eastern Conference, or the Atlantic Division, sorry, Eastern Conference, and then arguably the league as a whole. But when you have that mentality against a team like Ottawa, you see what happens is that they ultimately come back, they find a way to put a few pucks in the back of the net, and then suddenly you're having a deer in the headlights look on your face, trying to figure out how to get yourself back into this hockey game and avoid either going to overtime and losing or losing in regulation. Because had the Penguins lost that game, it would have been one of the most embarrassing losses as of late for them. Now, the last time the Penguins were really embarrassed in terms of lack of effort was the San Jose Sharks game, which Louis Domingue ultimately saved them in. But the point is that you can still not necessarily have your best game, but ultimately come out on top. If the Penguins had lost last night, that would not have been their best game, and they wouldn't have came out on top, which is that double whammy that you want to avoid. Now, of course, the game last night was the return of Matt Murray to Pittsburgh. was the first time after being traded to Ottawa because Ottawa didn't play in Pittsburgh last season with the realigned divisions. Of course, Murray and the Senators staying north of the border. So this was Murray's first trip back. He wasn't in the lineup. He wasn't on the bench dealing with a non-COVID-related illness. Got a nice standing and cheering crowd for him, chanting his name after the tribute video was played. The Penguins always do a phenomenal job with those tribute videos, and it was great to see the that Matt Murray got the recognition he deserves because you can sit there all you want and complain about how Matt Murray took Flurry's job. You can complain all you want about how poor Matt Murray's glove side is. But at the end of the day, if Matt Murray is not in the Penguins organization, the team doesn't win the Cup in 2016. They don't win it in 2017. And now you're looking at just one Stanley Cup in the Crosby, Malkin, Latang era. That would be a waste of their careers. So, again, whatever your personal beliefs, thoughts, or biases are about Matt Murray, you have to give him the credit because... The Penguins would not have those two Stanley Cups without him on their roster in the NHL and making the saves that he did. And I've said before that Matt Murray hasn't been the same since his father passed away. And I'm sure Murray doesn't want to use that as an excuse and is working hard to get back to where he was at with the Penguins. But... Like I was talking about with the mentality of the team in the Senators game. That is something that can be subconscious. That's constantly on your mind. You don't even realize it. And is ultimately dragging you down. Now, of course, staying on the goaltender side of things, there is a bit of an update in the backup goaltender dilemma. Louis Domingue was practicing ahead of yesterday's game, left with a lower body injury, 
had to be evaluated. It was ultimately placed on injured reserve. Casey Smith, however, was activated from the COVID-19 reserve list. The second end of a back-to-back here tonight would fully expect Casey Smith to be the one getting the start. Now, this game, of course, for Casey Smith going to be the first one back since coming off of the list yesterday. That's Captain Obvious. But at the same time, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him, especially with how well Louis Domingue played in that San Jose Sharks game. The sole reason why they won that game in overtime, and he's the sole reason it even got to overtime. So knowing how well Louis Domingue played, knowing that Casey DeSmith's performances haven't been strong this season, aside from the one game in Seattle when they beat the Kraken 6-1, DeSmith is going to have a lot to prove tonight. He's going to need to track the puck well, limit rebounds, and find a way to see through traffic because Columbus is going to bring that little brother mentality. You know, they're going to be that annoying little brother that is always a thorn in your side, and they are going to make DeSmith's life miserable in the crease for all 60 minutes. So if he can find a way to do those three things, once again, seeing through traffic, controlling the rebounds, and tracking the puck, of course, tracking the puck and being able to see through traffic kind of go hand in hand. But if he can do all three of those, he's going to have a strong night tonight and really kind of turn some heads in the Penguins organization, the coaching staff, and then it's going to be a real competition between Domingue and DeSmith. If Casey DeSmith goes out there tonight and doesn't perform the way that he needs to, I personally think the only reason he's going to stay in Pittsburgh for the next few weeks is because Domingue is on IR. When Domingue comes back from IR and DeSmith, again, if he has a poor performance tonight, I would not be surprised to see DeSmith put on waivers. But if DeSmith plays well, then the Penguins may either choose to keep Casey DeSmith and then have to send Louis Domingue through waivers to get to Wilkes-Barre, or they ultimately just send him down to Wilkes-Barre if he doesn't have to clear waivers. Not exactly sure on the status of that. But regardless, it's going to create a dilemma in a true competition if DeSmith plays well. And, of course, I want Casey DeSmith to play well. I'm not sitting here saying that I want Louis Domingue to be Jari's backup. All I'm saying is that I want what's best for the team. If it's DeSmith behind Jari, great. If it's Domingue behind Jari, great. And I was advocating in the preseason for DeSmith to get, rather Domingue, to get more opportunities because he played in the very first preseason game and that was the last we saw of him. It was ultimately sent to Wilkes-Barre Scranton before the season started. You can't evaluate a guy on playing him in one game and then not even utilizing him for the entire game. It was almost like it was known ahead of time before the games even started that he was going to Wilkes-Barre. And if that's the case, then why even play him in the preseason? But again... If DeSmith plays well, it's a good problem for the Penguins to have. If DeSmith doesn't play well, they have their answer for them in terms of who's the backup, who's going to Wilkes-Barre, whether it's through waivers or not. Now, 
whether the backup goaltending situation is solved tonight or not, the Penguins are going to have to be relying on Tristan Jari much of this season. I understand there are going to be some back-to-backs where the Penguins aren't going to have a choice as to who they ultimately play in net in terms of both guys have to play one night. It's just a matter of who plays which night based upon matchups. But the Metropolitan race right now is arguably the tightest it has been all season. You look at the New York Rangers currently sitting in first place, 40 games played, 56 points. Carolina, 36 games played, four games in hand over the Rangers, 54 points, just two points behind them. Penn's in third, 39 games played, 53 points. Washington right on their tail with 41 games played, 53 points. Of course, the Pens having a better win percentage to bump them over the caps. This Metropolitan Division is going to be a gauntlet the entire way down the stretch. Especially when you look at the fifth-place team in the Metro behind Washington, it's Columbus but they are 16 points behind the Capitals. Now, of course, they have four games in hand on the Capitals, so that gap could arguably decrease once once those two teams are on level terms with games played. But the point is, it's very clear who the top four teams in in the division are and who the bottom four teams in the division are. And that top four is going to be a nightmare fighting for who wins the division and ultimately hosts a first-round playoff matchup? Who finishes second and gets to host a first-round playoff matchup? Third, who ultimately has to go on the road in the first round of the playoffs? Or the fourth team who sees themselves in a wild-card spot and then could potentially get flipped to the Atlantic division if the number one seed in the Atlantic finishes with less points than the number one seed in the Metro. Of course, right now, Florida and Tampa Bay neck and neck for first and second in the Atlantic. Florida ahead in terms of winning percentage. But that would mean that fourth place right now in Washington would stay in the Metro and then have to travel to the Rangers on the road. It's just going to be a matter of positioning, a matter of seating, but that seating is as important as it will ever be over the course of this second half of the season. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates in terms of a 2022 roster outlook and the Players Association providing a new proposal on Monday to the owners here in just a few minutes on the Bethany Online Radio. BBN Online Radio can be heard anywhere you go by downloading the free Radio FX app available via the App Store and on Google Play. Bethany College Radio streams Bethany news and events announcements along with select sporting events and music and talk shows produced by Bethany College students.
and we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now, looking at the baseball side of things, starting with the league as a whole. Now, I know there's not really a whole lot going on right now with baseball because of the lockout, which I'm going to touch on here in just a second, but I can't ignore the baseball side of things for arguably who knows how long this lockout is going to last. It seems like it's taking a week and a half to two weeks for sides to come up with a proposal. And they meet for five minutes, decide that they don't like what this other side had to offer, and then they walk out. Of course, the players' union expected to counter the league's proposal on Monday at some point throughout the day. Now, we all know what's going to happen. It's going to be exactly what I just mentioned. The union is going to submit this proposal. The owners are going to take one look at it. They're going to laugh. The meeting will be done in about 10 minutes. We all know that's going to happen. This is the first proposal that the players have submitted. Then the owners aren't going to accept this. It doesn't matter what they throw in there. The owners aren't going to accept it. And again, let me remind you, we are about a month away from when players typically report to spring training. At this point, the pitchers and catchers are usually there and are on day two, maybe day three of workouts, depending upon when the regular season is slated to begin. And here we are, not even sure if spring training is going to happen. If it does, when is it going to happen? Is opening day still going to happen at the beginning of April? Is it going to be pushed back? It's like we're in 2020 all over again, and there's no baseball. Of course, in 2020, baseball came back in August in terms of regular season games. At this point, we can't guarantee that. And so what I really don't understand, and if somebody has the answer to this that's listening in, feel free to mention me on Twitter with an answer, either the show handle at Three Rivers Talk or my personal handle at DrewVonSia1. Why do the players and the owners not all sit down in one big giant conference room Together, they get there at 8 o'clock in the morning, they leave at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, even if you want to say 5, give them an hour to eat lunch. So 8 to 5 with a one-hour lunch break, sit in there every day and have conversations about what each side wants. If you have to give and take, you give and take, but you ultimately come to a compromise. And then once you have the premises of what the CBA is going to look like, that's when you draw it up officially as owners. Then you submit it to the players' union just to make sure that what is in there is legitimate. The players agree to it, and boom, we have baseball. I don't understand why that's so hard for the two sides to agree to do they may not want to be there from 8 to 5 every day and 
whether it's a player or an owner, I can understand that, especially at this point when the sides are more divided than ever before. But it's a lesser of two evils. The owners don't want to lose money with regular season games not being played, even spring training games, because they get ticket money and merchandise money, etc. The players do not want spring training games or regular season games eliminated from the schedule because if the regular season gets condensed, those players are not getting the full amount of their contract. They will get a prorated amount like they did in 2020. And if it gets to the point where the regular season schedule has to be condensed, that is going to open up an entirely new can of worms between the players and the owners as to how much salary they are going to be agreed upon to get paid. Nobody wants that to happen. So take the time now, sit down in a room somewhere in New York, all of the players' union reps, all of the owners, and sort this mess out. You want to show your fan base that you care about this as much as they do? Get this crap done. You want to show the fans that baseball isn't dying and its star athletes are just as good as Patrick Mahomes, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, Tyreek Hill, etc.? Get this mess sorted out and start to get ready to head down to Florida or Arizona based upon where your team has their spring training facilities. That's what both sides have to do. And again, there's going to have to be some sort of compromise between the two. But this is the second time they're going to meet since the new year. Nothing is going to get done Monday. Absolutely nothing. Now, taking a look at the Pirates roster outlook for 2022, there's still going to be a lot of work that needs done by Ben Charrington when the time comes that this disaster is sorted out. Because this team is going to take a step forward in terms of the amount of games they win, but they are still not there yet in terms of showing significant improvement. You look at the eight fielders, say for right now, I'll touch on pitchers, specifically the rotation here in a minute. You have Roberto Perez will be your starting catcher. First base. Again, this is going to depend on whether there's a designated hitter or not. If there's a DH, Yoshi Sutsuga will more than likely be the primary DH. If there's not, he's going to end up at first. So then you look at second base. If there is not a designated hitter and Yoshi Tsutsugo is at first base, Michael Chavis will play second. If there is a DH and Tsutsugo moves to that role primarily, Michael Chavis could end up at first. Shortstop. A toss-up between Newman, Tucker, possibly someone like Tucupita Marcano, O'Neill Cruz, if he shows a strong spring training whenever it is that happens. Maybe even somebody like Diego Castillo, Rodolfo Castro even, have strong performances 
they could hold the spot at short. At the very least, Castillo, Castro, Marcano, Newman, they can all play second. So if Chavis is at first, then there's an opening at second. Third, aside from catcher in the infield, third is the only position that's really locked down. Key Brian Hayes, there's no question. The outfield, as things stand now, left field, Ben Gamble, performed decently in 2021, will look to step forward in 2022. Brian Reynolds in center. Those two are pretty much definite at this point. Then you look at right field. Who is going to play right field? I absolutely do not want to see Anthony Alf, Anthony Alford, excuse me, in right field. We have to end the Anthony Alford experiment as an everyday outfielder. Just have to. Greg Allen, a player that Ben Charrington claimed off of waivers. Despite having a 270 average in 2021, that was on 37 at-bats. Very small sample size. When you look at a large season for Greg Allen with 200-plus at-bats, you have to go back to 2019, batting average 229. That's not good enough to play right field. We just moved on as an organization from Gregory Polanco because he couldn't hit the ball. And he also struggled to play defense, but that's beside the point. You can't throw somebody out there like Alford or Allen who's also going to struggle to hit the ball. So in terms of players on the 40-man roster currently, of course, O'Neill Cruz has the potential still to get moved to the outfield. The Pirates are committed to sticking with him at short, though, until he proves otherwise. So for right now, he's an infielder. That leaves Jared Oliva, Kanan Smith and Jigba, Jack Sawinski, Travis Swaggerty on the 40-man. Sawinski, Kanan Smith and Jigba, along with Oliva, are going to be in the minor leagues. Sawinski, Smith, and Jigba because they're still developing. Oliva because he's not good enough. I've seen enough of Jared Oliva. He's not a good hitter. He can't hit. In 40 at-bats in 2021, hitting 175, that's absolutely pathetic. He's not a good hitter. Average fielder at best. Bye. We don't want you. So, unless Swaggerty has a strong spring training and Ben Harrington says, you know what, I'm going to be aggressive with Swaggerty. We're going to throw him in right field on opening day. Unless that happens, the Pirates are going to need to sign another legitimate outfielder to play right field. The Pirates are going to have to figure out their infield dilemma based upon whether or not there's a DH. And if they're not comfortable with Michael Chavis playing at first base, if there is a DH, then they're going to have to find somebody who can play first base unless they move Sutsugo to first primarily and then bring another person in to be a DH. Maybe O'Neill Cruz serves as a DH. That's another possibility as well. But the work for the Pirates is not done. Now, the rotation is a whole different animal because this rotation is going to need 
work. As much as I was disappointed with JT Brubaker last season, if the Pirates were willing to move on from him after that abysmal season, they would have done so already. Brubaker more than likely will have a spot in the rotation to ultimately try to prove that he can rebound from last season. Now, where the rest of the rotation goes is a different animal. Where Lonzi Contreras, I don't think he's going to start the season in the big leagues. He'll start at AAA, develop there for a little bit, and then work his way to Pittsburgh. Mitch Keller has supposedly changed his entire motion, is now touching 99.2 with his fastball. We might see a brand new Mitch Keller in terms of what he can bring to the table. And just like Brubaker, if it doesn't work out for Keller this year, I totally expect the Pirates to move on from him, without a doubt. So you have Zach Thompson that the Pirates acquired in the Jacob Stallings trade. I think Zach Thompson is going to get an opportunity to pitch in the rotation at the start of the season. The Pirates didn't acquire Zach Thompson for him to be a bullpen piece or for him to be organizational depth. I know the record wasn't pretty in 2021 for Zach Thompson, but in 26 games played, 14 of them were starts. He pitched to a 327 ERA. 324, sorry. 324, 327, close enough, but 324, which is his actual ERA, slightly better. Now, I would like to see him take a step forward in terms of starting more games. But if I had to look at it now, I am in terms of his game log, a lot of his bullpen appearances were late in the season when the team was possibly trying to compete for a wild card spot. And they ultimately didn't get there. But in terms of why they did that, because he was unproven. And you're not going to... Rather, I take that back. I was thinking of the Mets. The Marlins weren't even close to the playoffs. Just completely disregard that about the Marlins. So he got moved to the bullpen because the Marlins were experimenting with other pitchers and were trying to see what they brought to the table. But... Where I was going with this, before my bro- before my brain decided to just mix teams up, at the end of August, when Zach Thompson was primarily a starter, his ERA sat at 450, which isn't necessarily the best, but it's manageable. He can bring that down, he'll be a decent starter. Quintana, of course, is going to be a project to bounce back. He'll be in the rotation without a doubt. The Pirates don't sign him if they're not going to use him in the rotation. So you have Brubaker, Quintana, Zach Thompson, and Mitch Keller. And then as for the fifth spot, that's arguably a toss-up. Does Will Crow find his way back into the rotation? That's a potential. Dylan Peters could see himself in there as well. But 
I think the Pirates, they have to go out and sign somebody. Bryce Wilson, Miguel Yahure, two other names that could potentially be in there. I think Wilson may ultimately have the inside track in terms of internal options. But again, I think the Pirates have to go out externally. So you're looking at, at the minimum, another starting pitcher, another outfielder, one that can particularly play right field, and then ultimately maybe a corner infielder slash DH, depending upon what happens with the CBA, what happens with Yoshi Tsutsugo and Michael Chavis with where you're comfortable playing them. And then if you can, throw in another bullpen piece. You can only make the bullpen better if the player does well and they're on a one-year contract, you ship them out at the deadline. If they don't, you move on from them and you bring somebody up like Will Crow or Miguel Yahure to continue to get them major league reps. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Today's final segment coming up, the Pittsburgh Steelers looking at why the defensive coordinator, the incoming one, needs to be an external hire and taking a look at Mike Tomlin's coaching tree, or should I say lack of coaching tree, right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for today's final segment, looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned before the break, talking about the new defensive coordinator in Pittsburgh. Now, of course, it's not official yet. However, Mike Tomlin did allude to the fact in his exit interview that it's more than likely Keith Butler will be retiring as defensive coordinator. Now, if that does in fact happen, I will be happy from the aspect that the Steelers need somebody new in there. They need a new defensive coordinator, one that can call their own plays, but they need an external hire, somebody new to the organization, somebody that brings a different perspective of the game of football and particularly defenses in general. You absolutely cannot promote internally again. And there's already speculation that if Keith Butler retires, Terrell Austin's going to take over as defensive coordinator. I understand that all of the coaches in the organization already have that Pittsburgh Steelers standard. But you're not going to sit there and try to feed me BS that there aren't other coaches in the league that could very easily pick up on that Pittsburgh standard. Mike Tomlin didn't have any prior coaching experience in Pittsburgh before he was named head coach. The team went out and got him externally. Matt Canada had never been in the NFL before he was the quarterback coach. The team went out and got him externally. And then next thing you know, he gets promoted internally to be offensive coordinator. I think Matt Canada arguably should have stayed as the quarterback coach and an external offensive coordinator should have been brought in. Whether it was an offensive-minded former head coach that had just gotten fired or you promote somebody who is a quarterback's coach in another organization, someone like Josh McDaniels. Of course, he's very unlikely to leave New England, but that is the type of person I'm referring to to bring into to your coaching staff. Somebody external, somebody that could potentially get a promotion out of it as well. And then you pull that mastermind away, especially if they're an AFC team that you could potentially see in the regular season and or playoffs. But the same thing goes defensively. Dick LeBeau was the defensive coordinator before Keith Butler. Keith Butler was already on the coaching staff when Dick LeBeau was defensive coordinator. Dick LeBeau left the organization, internal promotion of Keith Butler. Now, Keith Butler's looking like he's on his way out the door in the form of retirement, and rumors about Terrell Austin are starting up. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if Dick LeBeau had the Steelers defense that he did at the end of the season, or end of his tenure in Pittsburgh, I should say, and that is arguably what Keith Butler inherited and tried to use, and now if the rumors are true, Terrell Austin is going to inherit and try to run, Nothing is changing. Yes, you're changing the personnel that's out on the field, but it's not changing the scheme of the defense. You can't put a square peg in a circle hole. It's not going to work. So you may be changing 
pieces in terms of personnel like there's thumbtacks in a wall. But you're not going to be able to get them to work and run the defense the way you need them to. You have to bring in players that fit what type of defense you want to run. And the Steelers need a new type of defense to run. Because what Keith Butler and Mike Tomlin, since he's calling the plays, what they're doing isn't working. It didn't work at the end of Dick LeBeau's tenure. And if Terrell Austin takes over, it's not going to work for him. And getting into the situation with Mike Tomlin and how he's involved in this, of course, arguably he makes the calls defensively. There's no question about it. But Mike Tomlin has a small coaching tree in the NFL. And again, it's because of those internal hires. You cannot expect those internal hires to be branched out across the league when they're just coming from the same organization and then they're not going elsewhere. When they get moved on from in Pittsburgh after their promotion, they are either being demoted or holding the same position that they held in Pittsburgh, maybe at the high school level, which is even more of a demotion. Of course, not to throw any sort of shade at Todd Haley because I felt like he was a great offensive coordinator. He just didn't get along well with Big Ben. But you have Dick LeBeau, who went to Tennessee for two seasons after he left the Steelers organization. Aside from him, the only former coordinator under Mike Tomlin that has been successful elsewhere in the NFL, either as an offensive or defensive coordinator, an interim head coach, or getting the opportunity to be the true head coach is Bruce Arians. You look at the 2013, at the time, Washington Redskins. They had several coaches on their coaching staff in that season who ultimately now have head coaching gigs in the NFL. Matt LaFleur, Sean McVay, two of the three. Adam Schefter, of course, tweeting this out yesterday. And I find it here. Kyle Shanahan is currently the, or was the offensive coordinator for Washington in 2013. He's now the head coach of San Francisco 49ers. Matt LaFleur was your quarterback's coach, currently a head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Sean McVay, the tight end coach, currently the head coach of the L.A. Rams. That is what Mike Tomlin needs to have. You need to have multiple coaches that were once lower tiered in your system whether it be offensively or defensively, find a way to get promoted and take head coaching jobs elsewhere and be successful because of what they did in Pittsburgh and the fact that they weren't just some bum who was an internal hire. Because right now, that's the route the Steelers are going. That's the way that they are continuing to operate and nothing is going to change if they continue this operation it's truly not and you can say all you want about how 
The Steelers, they need to fire Matt Canada. They need to fire Keith Butler. And don't get me wrong. I understand change is needed. But it cannot just be any change. It needs to be external change. If Matt Canada keeps his job this season and the Steelers and Mike Tomlin want to give him the benefit of the doubt, fine. I'm not the biggest fan of it, but I will give him a second chance to right his wrongs from this past season. Some people may not be able to forgive him because of ruining Matt Canada, or rather ruining Big Ben's last season. Again, that's their opinion. That's their doing. None of my business. They can have that thought. But on the flip side of things with Keith Butler, too, whether he retires or not, he needs to go. One way or the other, get him out the door. And if it's retirement, if it's parting ways, that hire for the defensive coordinator position has to be external as well. Because otherwise, you're just recycling the same thing into that position, you're just putting a new face on it and thinking that suddenly unicorns and fairies are going to appear out of a pile of garbage. Because that's exactly what the Steelers are doing right now. Not that their defense is garbage, but there are certainly gaps within the defense, and Keith Butler's defense has been very poor. It was just now five years ago, doesn't seem possible it was five years ago, that Keith Butler's defense, with Tomlin calling the plays, gave up 45 to Jacksonville. That memory still pains many Steelers fans today, including myself. And I hate to bring it up because of that. But that's the point. It's Keith Butler's defense. Keith Butler's defense, with play calls from Tomlin, Gave up 47 to Cleveland in the 2020 wildcard game. Gave up 45 to Kansas City last weekend. And I know I talked about this on Monday in terms of Keith Butler with his poor defenses giving up those points. But when you have something that is that bad and needs to be brought to public knowledge... You have to mention it multiple times. And, again, Mike Tomlin is just as much at fault for not having a big coaching tree, for promoting the organization to carry out these internal hires, but also the fact that he's calling the plays defensively. Terrell Austin being on the Steelers' defensive coaching staff, I don't have a problem with. I think he does a great job for the organization. But if he wants to be a defensive coordinator somewhere, I truly believe that his first opportunity needs to be in another organization. Then, if he has success there and decides, you know what, I want to go back to Pittsburgh and be the defensive coordinator there, then fine, he can do that. He's a secondary coach right now, been there for 18 years. If he hasn't been promoted in 18 years, what does that tell you? I'll touch more on that in a second. But if he goes to be a defensive coordinator, heads to, we'll say, Houston or 
some some team like that that is still in the process of rebuilding. Serves as a defensive coordinator there for two or three seasons. Shows promise. Says, you know what, I want to come back to Pittsburgh to be a D coordinator. Then he can do that. Has another couple of strong seasons, and then he's getting a head coaching job. And that's how Mike Tomlin grows his coaching tree. But the fact that he's been in the league for 18 years, this is just his third season with the Steelers, but 18th in the NFL, what does that say about him? And of course, which is this is why I've said that the Steelers cannot just continue to pull the same people and hope that a new face is going to make a difference. Because when you look at Terrell Austin and look at where he has been in terms of coaching positions, he's only been a defensive backs coach. Three teams in the NFL prior to Pittsburgh. It was Seattle, Arizona, and Baltimore. He also had some collegiate coaching experience. But again, he's pretty much been stagnant through those 18 years. And you're going to promote him as a D coordinator over somebody that is external, whether they be a former head coach that just lost their job or someone who could be getting a promotion elsewhere from another program. Brian Flores, the Dolphins' ex-coach, that would be a legitimate defensive coordinator hire. Now, don't get me wrong. Brian Flores is a great enough coach that he should be a head coach. He should still be in Miami. But the Dolphins decided that they didn't want him anymore. And like they say, another man's tra- one man's trash is another man's treasure. The Steelers, they have to, at the very least, see if they can't bring him in. Even if it's for a season, bring him in. Try to. He may not even want to interview, but at the very least, make that effort to try to bring him in. And the Steelers are going to have to dish out money when it comes to bringing in external staff members for those coordinator positions. They've got to do it. They cannot continue to take the cheap way out when it comes to coordinators promoting from within. That's not going to work. It hasn't worked for the past 8 to 10 years. And the more the Steelers do it, the longer the playoff win drought is going to be, the longer the Super Bowl drought is going to be, since that's even longer. Let me just put this into perspective as the last thing I mentioned here today. The Steelers' Super Bowl win was in 2009. Last Super Bowl win, 2009. Last time they made it was 2011. When the Steelers won a Super Bowl last, 2009, I was in second grade. Now I am in my second semester of my junior year here at Bethany. Last time they made the Super Bowl, I was in fourth grade. So even if you go off of 2011, when they last made the Super Bowl, that was 11 years ago. Ben Roethlisberger was the last player from that 2011 Super Bowl team to still be playing for the Steelers. Well, that's not going to happen anymore. This drought is going on too long. 
for an organization that has strived on greatness like the Steelers, this drought is too long. It has to be fixed, and it starts with getting an external defensive coordinator hired. Whether Keith Butler retires or whether he's forced out the door through a mutual parting of ways or contract termination. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best of the Online Radio. As per usual, I thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you all have a great weekend. Maybe be able to get outside depending upon the weather. If there's still some snow, you could possibly go out and enjoy that if you haven't already. I hope you all tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Have a great day, everyone.